Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Hello and welcome to episode five of the Centre for Army Leadership's podcast. My name is Lieutenant Colonel Langley Sharp and it is my privilege today to introduce our guest, Dr. Claire York. Claire is an author, academic researcher and policy advisor. Between 2018 and 2020, she was a Henry A. Kissinger postdoctoral fellow and lecturer at International Security Studies and the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale University. Her writing and research explores the role and limitations of empathy and emotions in international affairs, diplomacy, policymaking, and of course, leadership. Alongside her research, she lectures and teaches at the International School for Government at King's College London. Prior to her PhD in international relations, Claire worked as a program manager of the International Security Research Department at Chatham House and as a parliamentary researcher at the Houses of Parliament. Claire sits on the Board of Advisors for Women in International Security UK, Promote Leadership and the Research Advisory Council of the Resolve Network. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the Cow podcast this morning, Claire, and thank you very much indeed for joining us. We're going to start um, 2021 with a break from our, our short tradition on our podcast series, where to date we've focused on uh, conversations with our guests, leadership more broadly in terms of their, their experience and uh, their unique perspectives. But today we're looking to conduct a deep dive into a particular aspect of leadership that has been gaining ground, and rightly so, in recent years, and that is empathy. And this is, of course, a, uh, an area of specialization for you with a wealth of research that you've conducted into empathy, emotions, um, and, and the role that both of those have to play in diplomacy, international affairs, and strategic communications. So I wonder if we could start with the, uh, the basics, please, and, uh, and just talk about some of the concepts themselves. So how would you describe emotions, emotional intelligence, and empathy? Um, so thank you so much for welcoming me on. It's a real pleasure to join you for this. Um, I'm going to start with emotions. And there are different definitions, and some are far more scientific. But for the purposes of this talk, um, I'm going to talk about them as feelings, both personal and collective. So they are things we feel in an embodied sense, but they're also ways in which we communicate and connect with others. They're things that we can read or demonstrate or perform in our interactions with other people in the world around us. And ultimately, emotions shape what we value. They're part of the lens um, of our worldview. Um, I think it's really helpful to think about them as sources of data and knowledge and insight. And what I find interesting is that emotions often get a bad reputation. We see them as irrational and they're positioned in opposition to this idea of calm, detached rationality. But actually, we should view them as symbiotic. Emotions inform our thinking, and our thinking shapes our emotions. And we need to be able to view them as connected and informing and speaking to one another. And I think that extremes of either emotion or rationality can be dangerous. So what we're then talking about is how can good rationality be informed by effective and judicious emotional intelligence? Um, and I know in particular, if I talk about emotional leadership. And if I talk about this, especially with people in the military, I think there's a danger that it can be viewed as quite a negative idea, that it's someone who's very emotional, they're prone to tempers, they might be volatile, have a fragile ego, they might be very prideful, or they use emotions as tools or weapons to control people or humiliate others. And I think it's understandable that we see emotions like that, but we need to remove that connotation from it. Um, and expand the definition of how we think about, about them and their complexity so that we have a much richer idea of their nuances. And I really love the way that the Army Doctrine talks about emotional intelligence um, as the capacity to be aware of, control and express one's emotions and to handle interpersonal relations judiciously and empathetically. Um, so we're thinking about how do we understand emotions as we experience them and communicate and perform them, and how do we understand their impact on others? I really like the work of people such as Susan David, uh, Professor Susan, Susan David, who talks about emotional agility. So learning to be adept at responding to what we feel and using them to make sure that we're engaging wisely with others. Um, and I think if we think about them in that way, it 
creates a much more informed, um, reasoned and rich way of um, encountering others. Um, and then when we talk about empathy, I view it as an attempt to understand the experiences, perspectives, lives of others. Um, it's about stepping into their shoes and seeing how the world looks and feels from a different vantage point. And it's not just about how they think about the world, it's how people feel the world, how they experience it. So empathy is a means to read and attune to the emotional states of others and also to gain information about how the world makes sense to them, what they value, what their interests are, what motivates them, how history and their political and social and economic context has shaped them. Um, but it also has this real iterative component in the way I define it, because I think it's really important to talk as well about self-reflection. And empathy is about knowing ourselves and understanding how our words and our deeds and our behaviors have an impact on others. And then being able to respond and adapt to what we learn in that process. So it's something we can learn and train and practice, which um, I think is obviously critical to a leadership academy. Absolutely. I'd like to come back on that learning and developing later on, actually, in some of the sort of practical aspects of developing one's emotional intelligence and, and empathy. But, but touching on the latter then, why is empathy, and you've touched on it already, but why is empathy so important to leadership? I mean, leadership is about people. Um, it's about offering a vision and a path and inspiring people to work with you to realise that. And I don't think you can lead them if you do not understand them. And I'd argue you cannot do it well if you don't care about them and their well-being as well as individuals. And I, I view people as wanting fundamentally to be seen and heard and to feel that they matter. And so empathy is a way of making people feel valued. And whether that's in society or in the military and organizations or in schools, it's letting people know they're not just a cog in the machine. They're not just a figure on a spreadsheet. They're people who matter um, and therefore learning how to engage with them see them um, and all the value and uh, experience that they bring to any situation. And I really like the quotation by uh, Captain Fiddle Hart that a commander should have a profound understanding of human nature. And so empathy is key to this idea of transformational leadership that the army really champions about getting the best out of everybody, um, about understanding the context and the demands of any situation and of how you train and lead the men and women that are serving. Um, I think it's the opposite of autocratic leadership, which is very much about it's my way or it's the highway. It's about really building a much more inclusive space and really fostering the kind of creative, empowered, curious individuals who will make good leaders in the future as well. And we, we need empathy to inspire people. Um, I mean, it's a key source of communication and also a key way to be responsive to others. It's a way by which to read the moods and the atmosphere that we work in. It's a way of understanding your audience, whether that is domestic or foreign, of knowing how to tailor your message to them. It's also a key way for reading nonverbal communication. That attunement to other people is really critical for then knowing how do you respond? What are the kind of subtle clues that you should be picking up on in order to make sure that how you behave and you speak in response to a situation is going to be appropriate and correct for what is needed. I was really pleased to hear um, in previous podcasts as well, General Sir Mark Colton-Smith and General Sharon Naismith both spoke about the centrality of empathy to good leadership. And I do think, I mean, they demonstrate it, but it's really about that leading by example. Um, empathy is about, I think it's about self-reflection. It's about understanding how other people matter, but it also aids your own humility because you recognize that your way and your worldview is not the only way and the only worldview. I think when you demonstrate that you've thought about other people and that you care about their point of view and experience, I think it fosters respect and trust and loyalty, which are critical in a military environment. And I think empathy also is really about curiosity and creativity. It's about asking questions about people and not assuming that we know them. And that has to be something that we really encourage in any leadership culture, that we have people who really are trying to push the boundaries and really say, are we asking the right questions? Do we really know what we're dealing with and how do we think more creatively about the problems that we're facing? So that helps in team development and community development and builds that bond between people. So I think it just sets a really positive learning environment. And also as a leader, if you can demonstrate it, it sets standards of behavior and character that we should all be looking 
at and being inspired by and feel empowered by. That's fantastic. I mean, there's there's plenty there clearly that resonates with uh, our doctrine, and you've 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 cited some direct examples there. And the way you so passionately speak about empathy, it's clear what a, a central concept it is to good leadership. I mean, it's it's all about the people business, and unless you understand yourself, you understand the people you're leading or following, the people you're working around, you you, you can't possibly lead effectively. But it, I guess it's it's a, a very difficult, it's easy to talk about, but a very difficult thing to do, skill to, to master, if you like, and, and to, do it, to do so consistently. Absolutely. And I think it's that real challenge of um, the difference between rhetoric and reality and being able to, we know the value of empathy in terms of what it means to talk about it. We know that it's got this real positive currency. It's quite a normative attribute. But then to actually put it into practice is far harder. Um, it's something that we need to be very conscious of and deliberate about. And it's a consistent process of thinking, okay, what, what do I really need to be asking? How do I really make the time and the effort? And you have to be able to walk the walk. And so we don't always get it right. And I think if we're going to commit to the importance of empathy, we have to accept that it's not always going to be something that we get right immediately, we're gonna fail at it at times and that's okay, it's about learning from those mistakes. Um, but I think it's also about how do we practice integrity as a leader? And I think this is particularly true with empathy is how do we know ourselves and our strengths and our weaknesses and how are we honest enough with ourselves to embark on this process, which is often uncomfortable of understanding different people's worldviews because the moment we encounter other people's worldviews, we're faced with the prospect that maybe our own worldview is not complete. And that's often a bit hard to countenance because we find comfort in our own worldview. We find that it gives us reassurance and it shapes us. So it therefore involves that process of taming our ego and being compassionate with ourselves when we don't get it right or we make errors. And that's key, I think, to any part of good leadership. I guess it's about, in line with that, it's about having the humility to realize that perhaps you don't have all the answers or your view isn't the right view or the only view and certainly it's something we talk about quite a lot is I can't think of many good leaders out there that don't have humility at the core of their personality and their character. You talked previously about empathy within boundaries what do you mean by this? So one of the challenges that I encounter when talking to people about empathy is that people are really wary about the idea of empathizing with everybody if you have all this information and all this care, how do you then make a decision ultimately? And I think we need to understand that this belief in the power and potential of empathy is not unbounded. As a leader in particular, you still have to come to a decision. You still have to set the course of action and the vision, and you have to be able to say, these are the boundaries of what I expect in terms of appropriate conduct and behavior. These are the standards that I expect you to adhere to and how we are going to approach this challenge or this situation or this workplace culture. And you can have empathy and compassion fatigue, which is when you take on so much care and you're trying to understand everything that you just become a bit numb. You're unable to therefore pay the care and the need um, and the attention to people that you should. And particularly for people in positions of authority, the responsibility stops with you. So how do you both embrace the potential of empathy while also setting very explicit boundaries such as I am going to try and understand your point of view and I understand that there are lots of different experiences and perspectives in this team but I will not tolerate racism or sexism or homophobia or intolerance or hate and that is my line and I will call that out but that is not part of what we need to be understanding so it's saying we will empathize, but we're also going to really promote inclusivity and humanity and dignity. And how do you communicate those boundaries? And I think as well, when looking, for example, at the army and this idea that the army has of transactional versus transformational leadership and the spectrum that you that I know has been spoken about in some of your doctrine, people come first is hugely important to realizing the strengths of individuals and for building the rapport that you need with the men and women who are serving. But if you're only focused on people and lose sight of the ultimate objectives as well of a mission or an operation or the standards that you need to get, 
um, then it can lead to a slip in what you're trying to achieve. It can actually promote weaknesses. So it's finding the balance so you're not a people pleaser. You're not trying to make sure that everybody is happy um, because that's impossible anyway as a leader. And I don't think that people respect it if they think that you are a people pleaser. How do you combine that with a real sense of these are the standards? And it was really interesting. I interviewed a senior military officer for some work that I was doing, and he spoke about this idea of how he hated sending his men out, men and women out for a run when it was cold and wet and miserable. But he knew that it was exactly that exercise that they had to do to be able to get the skills and training needed to survive on operation, to be able to deal with the hardships that would come with um, an operational deployment overseas. And I think um, I think that's really key is how you communicate that, how you say, I understand that you do not want to do this right now, but this is something that is needed and that is important. And I think a final boundary is also understanding that we will struggle with empathy at times and it's not going to be comfortable. And that's a boundary we just, we're going to confront within ourselves, that there are certain people's politics or certain experiences that we can't grasp because they're so different to us and it doesn't make them any less valid. It just is going to prompt this real sense of discomfort or frustration or challenge within us. And that's something that we just lean into and that we have to work harder at practicing um, in order to really use it effectively. That's really interesting. I think um, that's a really important aspect of empathy to understand is how you describe there's empathy within boundaries. I guess for the, for the military, our boundaries are really set in our values and standards. That's the baseline we expect everyone to, to adhere to and their behavior to, to adhere to. But within that, we need as diverse an audience as possible. And increasingly so with the sort of complex world that we are dealing with and will do in the future. And as we spoke about in previous podcasts, it's about having that, that breadth of, um, of thought and experience and, and, and bringing all that to bear so people have different views. And then we avoid groupthink. We avoid everyone thinking and doing the same, which the army is, and the military has been criticized for uh, in the past. But to do so, you've got to have empathy within boundaries. I wonder if we could move on to your specialist area of research um, and study, and that's empathy in politics and strategic communication. And I've heard you say before that empathy is political. What do you mean by this? And can you give us some practical examples? Um, yes. So politics is about how people collectively organize and manage society and communities and as part of that it's about determining the priorities by which we live by what we value and also whose views are accounted for and whose views matters within that and from my perspective empathy is about widening our area of our area of concern it means moving beyond self-interest and involves saying i want to understand how different people in this eclectic and diverse society or workplace or community experience the world tell me your aspirations, tell me where you're from, tell me your grievances, tell me what you're motivated by and what your interests. But that choice is not always gonna be well received because some people don't have an interest in knowing that or they don't benefit, they don't see a gain from that. Um, and other people might think that some views matter more than others. And I know there's a really interesting example that I use frequently, which is former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton spoke about the need to use um, smart power and she said, we need to be able to empathize with our adversaries. And at the time, obviously, with the US fighting ISIS um, in the Middle East, this, this expression was criticized and a Republican, um, a Republican senator criticized this idea and said, do you really expect us to empathize with terrorists? And when she was talking about empathy, I don't think she meant that we should compromise with terrorists, that we should concede. What she was saying was, we need to be, understand why they're using violence in order to understand better how we then counter that, in order to gain a sense of what is motivating them. Are these factors socioeconomic? Are they political? What's going on that means that they think that's their last resort? The role of politics and empathy as a political feature can vary depending on the context. And I think at the moment we're seeing with the pandemic that we really want our leaders to care. We want to see that the people in charge are thinking about us and our loved ones and our communities and the services and infrastructure and everybody who's part of that and making that work, that they're really thinking about how to keep us safe and well and healthy. And I think we're making decisions about the quality and the caliber of our leaders based on how much they're able to demonstrate that. And it's fascinating, for example, looking at 
Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, who's really managed to combine this strength of leadership with very decisive, clear action, transparent accounting about the data and the facts that they're dealing with as the science evolves with this real sense of, I want to keep you safe. And we saw it as well when she dealt with the um, terrorist attacks in Christchurch in March 2019, where she was dealing with terrorism. Um, but she made a point of saying, we're not going to talk about the perpetrator. He doesn't deserve our attention. We're going to talk about community. We're going to talk about how we care for one another and how we rebuild. And so empathy became this very political tool in trying to rebuild cohesion, especially because the terrorist had tried to create a divide uh, between the Muslim community um, and the rest of New Zealand society. And she was like, no, we're not divided by this. We are united as one. And I think it has a very powerful message in that. Um, and we see in the US elections at the moment, uh, President-elect Joe Biden has really made empathy a feature of his campaign and talked about how it's gonna be a really strong feature of his presidency. Um, and he views it as this tonic to the polarization and the marginalization that we've seen over the last few years as this antidote to the intolerance and the anger and, and as a way to, again, provide a healing bridge across society. So empathy has this political dimension to really bring in new perspectives and to try and show care where people have felt that it was lacking. And I think when we view the absence of empathy, when we think that our leaders don't care about us, it has a corrosive impact on public trust. And I think as well on resilience and how we feel um, collectively. So sticking with um, American politics, um, given your, um, uh, your research into that area, can politicians or indeed anyone else that seeks to influence a diverse audience apply a focused, targeted or, or selected empathy, by which I mean they show genuine empathy towards a particular audience that they wish to influence, perhaps being deliberately unempathetic to another? And without wanting to risk um, diverging from being apolitical, but looking at Mr. Trump, President Trump, um, he's won 74 million votes in the recent uh, presidential election. Uh, just under half of the US electorate voted for him. And yet he has been characterized as perhaps not the most empathetic leader. And yet he's connected with almost half the US electorate. So what is it in his communication that what role has empathy played in his communication to secure that vote? And has he perhaps been deliberately unempathetic to other audiences? Yeah, I'm really glad you raised this because it touches on the complexity and the subjectivity of empathy. Um, because you're right, I think a lot of us maybe struggle with the idea that tr uh, President Trump is empathetic because of his manner, his demeanor, his behavior. But it's interesting how many people I do speak to who say, no, he actually really does understand the concerns and grievances of huge parts of American society. And he does offer empathy because he speaks to people in a way that they feel the political establishment and the elite have not. They feel that they're not heard by the main institutions in Washington, D.C., whereas he really is able to give voice to that. And that surely is empathy. And I think we have to understand that empathy has this subjective quality. And it's something that I'm still trying to grapple with is, is it empathy even if we don't like what it looks like? If you're not empathizing with the issues or the people that I care about, that is still empathy if it's if it demonstrates and matches the criteria of listening and understanding the lived experiences and grievances and aspirations of others but it also can have this very selective quality as you mentioned and it's interesting authors and academics such as professor paul bloom from yale talks about how empathy can be distortive and it can create in groups against outgroup outgroups it can actually be used to consolidate a strong form of identity at the expense of other communities and other identities. And so you can use it to say, I am seeing you and I hear you, but they they don't. They are they are maybe not human. They're, you know, we see this with this kind of vilifying um, rhetoric and language for the outgroup. And we have to be really conscious of that and how it can be used in very different ways, how it can be manipulated, how it can be used for political ends that are much less expansive and inclusive than I think a lot of us who think about empathy would like to believe. And so it's something we certainly need to take into account uh, when we're talking about it, and how, it's, how its potential can be distorted. 
So sticking on um, strategic communications then, how can someone be genuinely empathetic to different audiences with competing worldviews yet still maintain integrity and credibility in their message? Firstly, I really think that we need to build communications into the outset of strategy making and stratcoms. It's not an add-on. It's not a message that comes in at the end. It's something that we have to really build into when we're designing strategies. How do we really want people to feel when this is implemented? How do we want them to experience the policy or the strategy? Um, and what does that mean for them? What does it mean, for example, to feel secure and how will they experience that? And how then do our strategic communications achieve that feeling and that experience. And as strategic communicators, there are always gonna be multiple audiences. It's very rare, especially in the current communications environment that you will have just one sole audience because other people will hear it, they will interpret it in different ways. So for me, it's very much about having personal integrity and having credibility as a communicator, being someone that people can look at and say, I know, I know who you are, at least I have a sense of who you are. I think it's about demonstrating care and efforts to understand different points of view and being able to articulate that you've gone through that process, that you've listened to different accounts and different points of view and you've factored that into your decision making and demonstrating that you're listening and reflecting on what you've learned. I think as well, it's about finding common ground. And again, this idea of boundaries comes in, how you say, look, I understand that this is the, these are the competing ideas about how we deal with this. This is why I've chosen this course of action and not this one. This is why I've decided to take this choice and perhaps I will revisit the others if the facts change and if the circumstances change, but we're going to go ahead with this right now and explaining your thinking and being able to admit when you make mistakes and critical again to that again, critical to that again is this idea of aligning word and deed. You have to make sure that strategic communications are matching your actions and matching what you say you're going to do, because I think it's in that space and that gap of misalignment that you then enable other people to either exploit the gap and exploit your weaknesses or to lose trust in what you're saying because they don't see your message as credible anymore. And that then really harms, I think, the image that you're giving and the intentions of what you're trying to communicate. And I guess, I guess therefore, unhinges your integrity as a leader as well, isn't it? And we often talk about that. It's, it's, it's easy to talk about leadership, but you've got to be able to exercise it and walk the walk and lead by example consistently to have the credibility and integrity of, a, of an effective leader. My next question relates to issues you've already brought up um, in terms of polarisation and um, an increasingly divergent, the divergent worldviews out in our society. Um, and arguably as a result of, amongst other things, mass information and mis or disinformation and targeted algorithms that are shaping people's thoughts and beliefs and therefore behaviours. So, so what role is empathy to play in mid uh, an apparent increase in polarisation of our society? So I think empathy is really a bridge between divergent worldviews and we've seen the danger and the divides that have emerged in recent years as a product of how we use the media and news information and different sources of information. And we've seen it in the UK and the US that so many of us are comfortable in our bubbles. And we're also convinced that we're right because the algorithms tell us that the rest of the world is agreeing with us. Then you see this at times of election when the, the side that maybe you're more aligned to seems to be doing better than anyone else. And then actually it maybe doesn't turn out that that was the case after all, because we, we've lost sight of how to report and reflect on the reality of what's going on. Um, so empathy really means in this context, understanding why people are feeling marginalized and why they're feeling unheard or misunderstood or left behind, which is something I think we've experienced in recent years with this increasing polarization. And then also understanding in the gaps that have emerged, how are sources of information and those people who gain advantage from using misinformation tapping into some of the feelings and emotions and ideas that different groups have? How are they exploiting those? How are they cultivating and perpetuating this kind of bubble mentality that means that we can't see how maybe our neighbors think or how other parts of our society or our teams are thinking? And so empathy is then about finding ways to speak to the sense of disconnect or grievance and to really explaining that you are listening to how different people understand and find, trying to find common ground 
at the moment, what's particularly hard is that facts themselves are being disputed and the science is being disputed, which makes it very difficult. If we have alternative facts that people view as credible enough, then it makes it very hard to build a common consensus around the best course of action. And we see this, for example, right now with the pandemic and vaccines and those who um, are anti-vaxxers and adhere to a different form of science than I think a lot of the mainstream scientists would say they should. A lot of this is about understanding the currents within society. And this is where it comes back again to emotions, understanding the mood and reading the mood and getting a sense of what are people picking up on? What are they responding to? What are they unhappy with? Why do they feel disconnected from the elite or positions of authority? Um, and how do we then get ahead of those who want to exploit that? How do we get out there more? And I think a lot of this in terms of uh, politics is about not treating the electorate as if they're stupid. I think, you know, it's not about not dumbing down the message. It's about being very clear and transparent with decision-making processes and being able to give information and detailed information while also always understanding the power of emotions in moving people. And I think there's been a tendency towards seeing good information as fact-based and rational, denying the very emotional power of communications and what people respond to. And I think this is something that uh, President Obama spoke about in his book, The Promised Land, that actually politics is about emotions and that's what really motivates and moves people. In addition to that, I think empathy is also about emotional intelligence. Countering polarization also means avoiding weaponizing shame and humiliation. Because I think when we shame people or we humiliate them, they act in ways that are counterintuitive to what we intend. And so it's about treating people with dignity and respect and trying to say that they matter. And we saw this with the American election when the Hillary Clinton, who was running, spoke about the basket of deplorables. It really, I think, lost her credibility in certain quarters because they felt that she no longer cared about them and was no longer listening to them. So battling polarization is about treating people with dignity while progressing the conversation and demonstrating that you want to find common ground, that you're able to hold space for difference. Claire, you've talked convincingly about the importance of empathy in aiding effective strategic communications, particularly in the political domain. But bringing it into the military context, and specifically in a time of crisis, when military leaders often need to communicate both with their own internal audience, but often have a voice as public communicators as well, and reassuring and informing the public, without, of course, compromising the security of ongoing operations, and one of you had any views, any thoughts on this? Okay, so I think this idea of how military leaders communicate with domestic populations and the public more generally, and not just the military and service personnel is really interesting because we're seeing, and we have seen in recent years, how much more engaged the military are with, for example, domestic disaster relief when Britain gets flooded. And we're seeing the kind of roles that they have to play in providing assurances and um, giving responses in these new environments. And again, I think it goes back to themes that we've spoken about throughout this conversation, really, about integrity. And I think our military leaders often are very well known or very well respected within the broader society. And that has a real benefit in terms of how people listen to their message and how credible they are, that people look up to military leaders as people in positions of authority who've earned their position, who have demonstrated through their actions and their experience, their, their capabilities and competencies and uh, authority in that role. But I think in terms of how they then communicate with the public, it's, as with all communications, it's keeping it clear, it's speaking in language that people will understand and trying to avoid using acronyms, trying to avoid speaking about it as an operation and being able to really connect with a public who maybe don't encounter the military that often in their everyday life and don't always understand the role that the military are providing. And I think there's really interesting examples, for example, of how the military worked with the police forces in disaster relief in the UK and flooding and how they then use their skills and their capabilities to really listen to what the police and the local communities needed and then provide the kind of rapid response and demonstrate through their actions the organisation and the effectiveness of what they do and being able to provide reassurance and articulate how the skills of the military are well suited to this crisis. Because I think that's something that maybe the public won't always understand, especially if they've only really seen the military in war fighting 
positions or in operations overseas, what are the skills and experiences that military personnel bring to any crisis in terms of organization, in terms of courage and leadership and teamwork, cooperation, thinking about solutions in innovative ways, really developing and deploying unique capabilities and uh, strengths that they have been trained for and equipped with over many years of training. Um, so it's how that is communicated and articulated by position, people in positions of leadership to provide that reassurance and build the confidence and the trust of um, the public. And this is something that we might see as I know the military are being put forward for dealing with the vaccination um, at the moment is this is why the military are so well suited to be able to do this. They're not trying to take over. They're not trying to lead this. They're trying to work with the health services and with the infrastructure across British society to make it more efficient to roll it out more quickly because we need all hands on deck right now in order to find a solution to a crisis that is getting out of control at a really crazy and exponential rate. So I think articulating how they can do that and why they're well equipped to and their history of working with others to do that um, is really important. And beyond some of the national resilience examples that you've highlighted here, I guess if we were talking about more conventional operations, which may in turn bring about security concerns for the public at large. I guess the role of the military communicator then is about providing that reassurance in a time of crisis. Again, I think this speaks to the personal integrity and credibility of the leader and their ability to communicate. I think it's about being able to explain and communicate in as transparent a way as possible, which is obviously difficult when you're dealing with a security threat and dealing with a lot of intelligence and secret information, being able to be as honest and clear as you can about the nature and the scale of the threat and avoiding escalating a threat or over-securitizing a threat, because I think that actually doesn't always make people feel more secure. It's about demonstrating that you have a handle on the threat you understand what's involved in the response and that you've thought it through. You know the course of action that's going to be taken, but you're also open and receptive to adjusting that as facts and the context and the situation changes. And I think it's that idea and willingness to show that you're consistently reevaluating the position and being able to communicate when maybe things have not gone to plan, when there have been errors. I think the public are receptive to learning more about what is going on in the world and learning about the nature of the threats that we face, but it's about making sure it's proportionate, making sure that it's clear and honest, um, that it's informed, and again, combines the judicious use of facts and information with emotional resonance and emotional intelligence to understand what people need to feel secure may not necessarily be all guns blazing rhetoric. They might just need to feel that it's being handled, it's being dealt with, and we are trusted to do it. We have the skills and capabilities. And then looking, for example, at the frequency of that communication and where the platform and the forum should be for that. Should it be on Twitter or should it be in more professional briefings? Should it be in the newspaper in more detailed op-eds so that you're giving the kind of right context and details that's required of any given situation? And that changes um, depending on the circumstance. I think what you've um, uh, talked about there in terms of the ability to effectively inform and relate to a diverse set of audiences and not just the military audiences, we often associate that with our senior military leaders, the operational commanders that would be front and center, but actually increasingly as, a, as the army has a, an ever-growing global footprint and permanent points of presence, those sort of responsibilities, communication responsibilities, are going to be devolved down to junior leaders, our NCOs and our junior officers as well. So it's definitely a skill set that that resonates across the the breadth of our of our rank structure. I think you've talked really, really effectively in terms of the role of empathy and the importance of empathy at the political level in terms of strategic communications and and bringing it down into sort of the military strategic operational level. But I was wondering if we could finish by right down at the, the tactical level, because much of what you've talked about, although you've spoken it in that broader context, absolutely resonates in, in terms of day-to-day -day leadership of, of, of army leaders, army NCOs and, uh, and officers. And so my final two questions uh, relate to day-to-day -day use, if you like. We often say that a leader's role is to create the right environment or the right climate for leadership to flourish. Can the same be said therefore for empathy? And if so, what environments encourage or discourage empathetic behaviours? And as leaders, then how do we nurture or indeed guard against these respectively? 
Yes, absolutely. I think as a leader, you definitely model the behaviors. And I know that uh, General Smart Colton Smith spoke about how empathy sets the style and the tone and the atmospherics and the culture of an organization. So empathy is critical because it makes you receptive and sensitive to others. Um, but it also involves this process of demonstrating, communicating care. And I think when you're thinking about that environment and that culture, we go back again to the importance of emotions and the connection between emotions and empathy. Because as a leader, how do you want them, how do you want your people to feel? Do you want them to go home from their workplace inspired and empowered and energized and committed or exhausted and demoralized and frustrated and apathetic? I certainly would want the former over the latter. And so the question then is, how do you cultivate the appropriate environment, the the appropriate emotions, the feelings that create and engender that kind of workplace to get the best out of everyone. So I think it's about reading the mood and being able to pick up on the emotional currents within your organization. And that means as well, talking to people at all levels and all ranks. It's not just what you can see, because if, particularly if you're at the top of an organization, it's probably very hard for you to access what people at the bottom of an organization are feeling and experiencing, because your day-to-day -day maybe doesn't involve much time spent in that same environment so how do you listen to people across all ranks how do you make sure that you're learning and asking for advice and insight from junior members of the organization as well how do you pick up on how moods change are there certain decisions that sh cause prominent shifts that you can feel and i think anyone who likes stadium sports will know that the way in which a mood can suddenly shift when your team is winning to when you feel that a referee has made a bad decision to when your team is doing Poorly. You know, you feel that collective sense of emotion that people are kind of channeling. So how within a workplace can you also tap into that? Are people feeling positive about the direction of change that you put forward? Where are there maybe concerns and how can you respond to that and maybe dig in a little deeper to find out more information? I think in terms of creating the environment, it's also about modeling it. And we've spoken before about good, clear, honest communication. It's making sure that you demonstrate personal integrity going out of your way to get to know people, to really know where they come from, to remember their names, to listen to them and what they tell you in an active way and not just because you're trying to demonstrate you're listening, that you're actively taking the time to do that. And then demonstrating how information you've gained has informed your decision-making and also offering kind of rewards or incentives. If someone's given you a really valuable piece of advice or guidance, how do you call them out and say, I got this great tip from this person and I really want to recognize it had a role in shaping what we're doing in a more positive way. So you want to encourage an environment where people genuinely listen to one another. It's not just the leader that has to do it. In order to really embed this into a team and an organization, you have to be fostering a culture where everybody is seeing the value of listening to each other and of encouraging diverse perspectives and points of view and fostering dialogue and curiosity that generates a richer and more creative understanding. I think as well as a leader, it's about not trying to have all the answers, knowing who to ask, um, respecting and honoring different sources of expertise and their different levels. And again, it might be that you have junior officers or junior members of the service joining who are fluent in Dari or Chinese or Somali, or they've spent time living abroad. And so they bring cultural insights that you may not have access to. So how do you empower that within the organization? Again, I think it's about innovation, encouraging that while also acknowledging the boundaries of which, in which it should take place and creativity and enabling people to take calculated risks because mistakes are going to be seen as part of it Again, to certain degrees, there might be certain mistakes that are absolutely beyond uh, the pale, but how do you tolerate that? And I think especially with the military, it's about demonstrating care for military families as well. It's not just about the service personnel, it's about the whole family um, and the unit that is there. So demonstrating care for the people who also give their lives to the services and their time. And I think you want to discourage shutting people down and humiliating people for challenging ideas in charge of your own ego enough to not feel threatened by a different or difficult point of view, that it's not to be taken personally, that it's someone offering a new perspective. Again, it's about these metrics of success. What do we reward and what do we value? And then are they aligned with an emotionally agile environment? Um, do the metrics enable a collaborative and creative 
environment? And do we reward those who demonstrate that they are actually quite adept at emotional leadership? That they may not be the people who shout the loudest. They may actually be humble and not talk about it. Who are the people in your team who inspire others and who other people trust with their confidence? Um, and how do you then acknowledge and reward that? There's plenty there that we we recognise, and it's really encouraging that you're you're speaking so passionate about a lot of the issues that we often speak about: ca- calculated um, risk, knowing your people, um, embracing challenge and diverse thinking, embracing and referring to the experts, and, and above all, leading by example. So I wonder if we can bring all that back then to the day-to-day practical realities. And 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 again, right at the beginning, you spoke about rhetoric versus reality. So, what advice would you? give to our young leaders, our men and women of the armed forces, as they're progressing on their leadership journey? How do they develop practically? How do they develop their empathy? Great question. So empathy can be learned and trained, and it's practiced like a muscle, like all the other muscles. So except it's not always going to be easy, we're not always get it right. I think the first one, which I know stands out in a huge amount of your leadership material, um, is this idea of integrity. And I think that comes at a day-to-day way by really getting to know yourself. And I'm going to sound a little bit like a new age kind of hippie, but I think, you know, it's doing the work to understand who you are, to be very honest with yourself about your strengths and weaknesses and asking trusted friends and advisors for their opinion. You know, what am I good at? What, it, what should I really be doing more of? And what may be my weaknesses? What can I maybe work to address? Uh, what do I need to maybe think about in terms of who I work with to fill those gaps that I'm not as good at. So often you get the kind of the visionary leader often needs someone who's very, very good at the organizational day-to-day details, because often a visionary will not be as detail um, oriented. So how do you make sure that you're balancing out your competencies and strengths as part of the team? It's about taming your ego and understanding that you're part of a team and that you need to not take things personally, but also understand that it's not about you. It's about a collective mission and having self-compassion for when we don't get things right, learning from errors and really working on self-esteem. So it doesn't kind of become this demon that you're fighting. How do you really have that kind of strong sense of self and worth and value? And I think when you have that, you also are then able to extend it to others far more easily. So accepting failures, having trust and showing people that you're trustworthy about active listening, really taking the time to hear what other people say and what they're saying behind the words. You know, what are they not saying? What are they not feeling comfortable about um, sharing in certain spaces? And how do you then find out more about that later on? Be curious, be humble. As we said before as well, be comfortable with ambiguity and with discomfort. We so often want neat answers and we view the world in black and white, but anyone who does politics or leadership, and I tell my students this all the time, all the interesting answers in politics and all the solutions are in the gray space and we have to lean into that so then it's about communication and being able to communicate that you're in the gray space and that you're dealing with complex solutions and complex ideas that are not going to yield neat easy finite solutions and i think particularly at the moment when we're dealing with military engagements that are increasingly multinational where we're really looking not only at how we cooperate as say a British force, but as an international force working with cooperation cooperation and alliances with other countries, how do we start to learn more about how other cultures and countries experience the world? And I think they're learning a language. I'm always a big advocate for people to learn languages because I think even if it's not the language you need on a specific operation, I think it forces you to view the world differently because every language has their key and their code and it offers a new world for you to then think differently and connect with people in new ways. So I think especially as we go into that international, multinational cooperation space, we should be doing much more of that. Thank you very much, Claire. Before I let you go, we've got a few quick fire questions. First of all, who is your most inspirational leader in modern times? Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand. Who is your most inspirational leader from history? President Nelson Mandela, South Africa. What piece of advice would you give a senior military leader today? Unsurprisingly, lean into the power and potential of emotions as sources of insight and information and understanding at both a personal and collective level, and then find ways to communicate and model their value. And finally, what are society's biggest leadership challenges in the future? 
from my perspective, being able to bridge the divides and polarization we face. And I think social media, as we've spoken about, have reinforced our bubbles and worldviews and intensified a lot of the identities and narrow identities that we are seeing. So we need leaders who can offer wisdom and kindness and courage and strength and the determination to foster a common and genuine sense of community and humanity and hope for the future. And that's a difficult job. That's not going to be easy, but I think that's the biggest challenge that we face. Loads for us to take away and to think about today. Professor Claire York, thank you very much indeed for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Well, I hope like me, you found that conversation both fascinating and insightful. And I go back to what I said right at the beginning of the podcast. And concepts such as emotions, emotional intelligence and empathy are talked about a lot in regards to leadership. But rarely do we really unpack them and understand what they mean and what role they play. And I think Claire's done a really good job of doing that for us today. I love the way she describes emotions as shaping what we value and our worldview and that symbiotic relationship with emotions informing our thinking and our thinking informing our emotions. And we strip it right back. Leadership is about influence. It's about an individual influencing another individual in, a, in order to achieve something, to do something. And the way we successfully influence others is through communication by what we do or what we say. But to, for that to be truly successful, we need to be able to connect to one's emotions and in turn affecting their thoughts and their behaviours. And hence the role of empathy, the ability to step into someone, someone else's shoes and see the world from their vantage point, as Claire said. And when you see it from that perspective, you wonder how, how you can possibly lead without understanding others, or without understanding their perspectives, whether we like their views or agree with their particular views or not. And more broadly, of course, it's about understanding yourself and the importance of self-reflection and appreciating how what you say and what you do has an impact on others. And I was really taken by the concept of empathy within boundaries, because of course, empathy itself is, is not limitless. And as leaders, we have to set the boundaries about what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And for us, as I said in the conversation there, it's about adhering to our values and standards without, of course, stifling the diversity of thought, talent, experience, and creativity that exists across our army. I thought Claire also made a really important point about empathy and how it can be distorted, creating in and out groups, and reinforcing identity for certain audiences at the expense of others. And I think as leaders, that's something we, we need to be really conscious of and guard against. And finally, it was reassuring, of course, to learn that empathy is not innate. It can be learned and it can be trained like a muscle. But to do so, you've got to have humility. You've got to know yourself. You've got to listen to others. You've got to be willing to fail. And of course, you've got to be comfortable with operating in the gray space. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast. Visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership. And of course, follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.